welcome to The Lubber's Hole. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And this week we're wrapping up our reading of Treason's Harbour, number nine in the Aubrey Matron series of novels by Patrick O'Brien. So, Mike, orient us in time and place. Where were we last week? Where might we be headed this week? You bet, Ian. We're, we're finishing up chapter nine. We're going to head into chapter 10. And we remember that last week, Stephen saved the hunted bear. They were they were going to head off on this bear hunt. Stephen <laughs> you know, set the bear free. We encountered Charles Fielding, Laura's husband, escaped from the French, and now ready to duel Jack, having heard some of those Valletta rumors. We saw Stephen gazing serenely at dolphins until the surprise took a French privateer and the dryad beat her the surprise back to Malta with the news of Fielding's escape, thus threatening the life of Laura Fielding. While Stephen made it to Laura's house to warn her and was hiding there as the French agents coming to her in came so that uh, he sat there, listened behind curtains as they talked about their need to leave and who would be coming back to kill them. So this week, Jack gets a new mission for the surprise he gets some wanted and some unwanted company on the mission. Uh-huh. Stephen works and continues hoping to save Laura Fielding from the French agents, and the crew comes to see Stephen in a little bit different light. And to end Treason's Harbor, we see some action for Jack, the surprise, and her crew. Oh, great. Some action at last. And Mike, we get almost straight into it. Jack goes to meet the senior post-captain on station in Malta because the commander-in-chief Ives is away, because Hart is away. He gets his orders from a senior post-captain called Fellows, who is a bit of a grumpy old soul. He gives Jack his orders, and the orders say that Jack is to head straight to Zambra. And there he's got to interview the consul, Mr. Elliot, and take proper measures to deal with the day of Mascara, who, it says, his most extravagant, unjust and inadmissible demands, unfriendly expressions, even menaces of hostility, if he should not obtain the sums of money he has laid claim to. This this day of Mascara is out of control and Jack is being sent to take care of the situation. The orders say that Jack is free to deal with acts of hostility and expose the acts of the French, he can also then bring Elliot the consul back home. And Mike, there's some really interesting conditions and little codicils in this list of orders that make me just worry a little on behalf of Jack Aubrey. It says, Jack is to keep an even temper, even if the day does not. And this is the commander-in-chief warning him. And Jack's had that kind of warning before from admiral admirals. Right. It also informs him that any bad acts on behalf of the day towards his majesty's flag will result in war being declared. And in that situation, Jack has permission to punish any injustices by seizing, burning, sinking, destroying, blocking up ports, cutting off commerce, and then, having done all of that, undertaken a one-man war, to report back to Gibraltar. Stephen Maturin is to be his political advisor, and he is warned about the law of neutrality. And again, Mike, this gave me a little warning that he's had these kind of orders before. Nonetheless, Jack thinks this is all straightforward. But Mike, this ruler, the day of mascara, or mascara, if you're into makeup, (laughs) (laughs) we've we've heard of this guy before. This signifies something, don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is, if you will, Chekhov's day, the day of Mascara. You know, we kept <laughs> hearing this repeating theme, and Ray kept saying, and, and Leswa saying, absolutely, good idea, Ray, that, you know, this was the day that was going to kill two birds with one stone, then three birds with one stone. And now we've got, we've got Jack, we've got Stephen, and who's the third person that might be headed this way? Well, Captain Fellow's continues and tells Jack that the two-decker HMS Pollux carrying Admiral Hart is going to accompany Surprise to Zambra. But strangely, Hart, the the homeward-bound Admiral, is to take no part in negotiations. They don't want the day to think that he's worth a ship of the line and worth a flag officer, and Pollux is there for mutual support in case they meet any of the Frenchmen. And this raises a bit of a red flag for Jack, I think. He asks if Hart is fully aware that the orders say that surprise alone is to do to carry out the negotiations. And Fellows and Jack both know that Hart has a tendency to interfere even more now and with greater certainty that he's right since his inheritance. And Fellows says, 
in answer to the question, does Hart know? He says, I believe so. Right. And Mike, it's it's odd, isn't it? This doesn't really stack up on its own, this logic. You know, on the one hand, the day doesn't merit a ship of the line, but on the other hand, a knowledge of Hart's presence will have an influence. Hmm. This sounds like pretty thin logic. It's almost like someone wants Hart to be there for no particularly good reason at all. Right, right. And it, it's interesting because we didn't get a lot of backstory on, you know, when, when Hennage Dundas was saying that, you know, Hart and Ives had had this big blow up and Hart's headed home. Now he's accompanying Jack, you know, back on this thing. It really is. It has you scratching your head just a little bit. They move past that. And, you know, Fellows does the, the mandatory review of the surprises statement of condition. You know, they they want to send her out as quickly as possible. And they notice that she's short water because she had to dump some over. as She was chasing that privateer. But they agree. Jack says, you know, I, I know these waters. I can water near Zambra. Um, he surveyed it when he was third lieutenant on Erotus. And they were stuck on the brothers, these these kind of uh, rocky outcroppings in the bay there. So Jack knows this pretty well. They're going to sail in the morning with Pollux. And Ives had fellows get Jack some more of his former surprises back. So normally we would think this would really cheer Jack up. And, and Jack's thinking, yeah, you know, it would be a blessing if they weren't all about to be broken up again. So uh, there's this great big storm raging outside. Um, fellows invites Jack to dine because he tells him it's not a fit night out for man or beast. Well, you know, they say in, in movies in the TV, it's always raining for a reason. Right. <laughs> and there's always a storm for a reason. And there's a storm covering the encounter between Stephen and Laura back at her place. Lesua and his man have left. They've already decided who they're going to send back to kill Laura. And Laura arrives immediately after they leave. She's very happy to see Stephen, but she's saddened when she asks about Ponto. Ponto had died suddenly this morning and she buried him in the garden. And I don't think at this point Laura thinks anything of it, but Stephen, I think, is spotting a connection here. The maid, meanwhile, has been called away to Gozo and Laura says that she looked frightened. And Stephen reveals really what's going on to her. And this is a really urgent moment. This is one of those mm. reveals like you get in a John le Carré spy movie, you know, where your cover is blown, he says. Charles has escaped. Charles is doing fine. He's healthy. But the French agents know it. And they're coming back to kill her, as we overheard last night, just as they had done for her dog, Ponto. Stephen's clearly playing out the options in his mind here. He asks her if she has anywhere safe that she can stay in Valletta. She says she doesn't. So that leaves them only one thing. They have to hurry through the harbour, through the storm at night, back to the ship. Yeah, this is it's funny. We just keep getting this changing perspective all over. And now we're we see Jack kind of walking back to the ship, and he sees that his stern window lights are lit. And he notices that Moet, Killick, and Bondin are kind of just standing around looking pleased with himself. And, and they tell him as Jack comes aboard that the doctor is aboard with a visitor in Jack's cabin. And, and Jack's really kind of stunned. He says, you know, Stephen never goes into his cabin unless he's staying with him, which he's not right now. If he was a guest, it would be different. And when he gets to his cabin, he's further astonished to find Laura Fielding there looking, he thinks, like a drowned rat. He, he learns that she has no baggage. Um, she, on the other hand, looked radiant because she's so happy to be away from this possible assassination. You know, she was so scared. She kind of grew up in this Neapolitan court, the two Sicilies, where she's seen all this stuff play out before. And now she feels like she's there surrounded in her mind by 200 powerful, affectionate men. She's also thinking she's not worried about Charles. She's sure she can explain the situation to him. And despite the rain, O'Brien writes, she glowed to rival the lamp. Stephen, you know, is right in the middle of this situation. He explains to Jack that he has promised her passage to Gibraltar in Jack's name. And Jack, these, these close friends, I love this, sees the urgency in Stephen's face. And, you know, I can imagine Jack's mind's going in a hundred directions, but he immediately says he's delighted to have her with them. 
He tells Killick to move him into Pulling's cabin, which they had never filled, to get Mrs. Fielding fresh towels, scented soap, get her his warm woolen dressing gown so that she can, you know, kind of get out of her cold, wet things, and then to join them all for toasted cheese. Don't we just love a, you know, a, a, a night with warm toasted cheese here? Oh, that's great. If I was going to arrive on board ship drenched <laughs> and uh, with 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 the with the, uh, with the spies hard on my heels, I think I'd want a warm wool dressing gown and some toasted cheese. Absolutely. And it, and it's great as well. She's joining this little bit of boys club with Jack and Stephen. She's not naive. She's not an ingenue. She's pretty happy that she can take care of her part of the situation, which is the connection with uh, with Charles and what he thinks of things. So this is feeling this is pretty feeling pretty good. And the friendship is really paying off here between Jack and Stephen. Mm-hmm. They are in Pullings's old cabin, which Jack has moved into. And Jack says, this is all square rigged, Stephen. And I love it. I'm going to attempt the accent here just for a second because I love the way he says it. As square as Pythagoras, brother. And I'm not <laughs> going to continue with the accent. As square as Pythagoras, brother. And I'm very much obliged to you for the handsome way in which you welcomed our guest. Now we learn a little bit more, or we, rather we're reminded about what's going on in the uh, intelligence environment around Malta. How did you know, asks Jack, that we were bound for Gibraltar? Since it was known to the port captain's daughter, it was common knowledge among her female acquaintance throughout the island, Laura included. So, Mike, we're reminded again of all of these intelligence problems that are besetting the British authorities in Malta. And I think we're also reminded of the danger of underestimating women. (laughs) Amen, brother. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah, I just love this interaction with with Jack and Stephen here. Now, Killick comes and asks permission to set up Stephen's dressing chest for Laura. That we remember Diana's gift to Stephen and, and this kind of objects Diana in mind, right? Lord Stephen says Jack suddenly struck by the thought of his fiery cousin. It would be the devil to pay and no pitch hot explaining this to Diana. Stephen's kind of, you know, he's just what is, do you think my motives might be suspected? I am mortally sure they would be suspected, even if you were to speak with the tongues of men and of angels, too. Think, Stephen, you brought the handsomest woman in Malta aboard in the middle of the graveyard watch, someone who was seen leaving your room at Searles the night of the thieves. Now, I'm reading this, and, you know, I I get worried with Stephen around French agents, but now I am mortally worried for Stephen. I mean, Diana, talk about somebody who could hurt Stephen. This would not be good. No, and and he really lacks perspective here. We've talked about this before with Stephen, with with French agents. I think he's a, he is as, as insightful as anybody can be about the intentions and the perspectives of French agents. But his wife—that's a different story. He's never really had a clear view of how Diana sees the world, right? and to think that oh, it's news to me that my motives might even be suspected is like super, super uh, lacking in awareness there, Stephen. Right. And we've, you know, we've had Stephen several times thinking, you know, when he got these anonymous letters about his wife having an affair and he's saying to himself, well, unless, you know, he had done something just blatantly public and untoward, she would never think about something like that. And I wish the penny would drop for him to say, Stephen, pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think maybe he's, uh, we're pleased that he retreats into his safe place, which is coded messages and intelligence he spends the rest of the night writing messages in code for ives and ray and th- this is this is the risk starting to play out for us here because we know that any message destined for ray is not going to have the effect that Stephen hopes for he sends them off in the morning he didn't notify the governor since he'd seen one of his men boulet at the house he thinks that ray ought to be able to round up the french when ray returns The French might think that Laura left with her lover, hearing her husband was returning. So he thinks maybe that's how they'll see the narrative. It turns out that it's not only the French who think that. (laughs) At breakfast, he notices that this, this way that everyone's looking at him, they're looking at him with embarrassment, admiration. It says a new respect. And as we've heard already in this story, he is a little bit upset because he doesn't think he deserves any of these, just the same as it hasn't crossed his mind that he might have to explain his conduct to Diana. Right. So what else does he do to keep himself secure and in his happy place? He's written his coded messages. He goes and does some surgeon stuff. He checks the sick bay. Um, he grabs some laudanum, of course, and he reads 
Pocock's notes on the day of Mascara, this ruler that we're going to go and take care of. And we learn that this day is more independent of the Sultan than Algiers, lives in Zambra, the harbour town, which is the seat of his country's trade, rather than the capital Mascara itself. And we learn that French agents are active and successful. And with that, he went to sleep. Great. So he's he's finally, you know, in, in, as, as the day is dawning, Stephen's fallen asleep with a little bit of laudanum. And it turns out that both Stephen and Laura sleep late into the next day, which, of course, has the crew talking even more <laughs> as neither of them are showing up in the morning <laughs> here. And when Stephen finally comes on board, you know, Laura invites him to come join them all, uh, her and all the other officers, to go look at Venus. Um now, oh, yeah. <laughs> as they're there, you know, it's kind of time to do that clean sweep for and after. They're thinking about that coming up here at the end of the day. And Jack decides, mm, you know what? We don't want to, you know, upset Laura and have to, you know, sweep out the cabin there. And, you know, he'll, he'll just not do it today. But it turns out that that today continues on and on in its petty pace, if you will. And they don't do it their entire beautiful leisurely given the Pollux's speed, six-day voyage. Um, and O'Brien writes, for once the surprises did have a moment, even a fair number of moments to lose, and that they were all grateful for this time. Everyone dresses up every day. They watch their language. They're all kinder with each other. There's no need for any severe punishment. And, and she's an even happier ship. And O'Brien writes, it occurred to Stephen that a really handsome thoroughly good-natured but totally inaccessible young woman changed its stated intervals before familiarities could set in would be a very valuable addition to any man of war's establishment so she's thinking you know the presence of the right woman can kind of get men in line and just acting in in their better selves i love that and you know we love it there's very much music on these six days and the men on the ship you know, they find out that she doesn't have anything to wear and they want to invite her to a special gunroom dinner. So all these guys are bringing the fabric meant for their mothers and wives and sisters to Mrs. Fielding so she can make a gown for her gunroom dinners. And all these people who might have had some moral condemnation find that they have none for Laura Fielding, although they do look at Stephen askance every once in a while. You know, Brian says they look a little pointedly at Stephen. Ah, <laughs> oh, poor old Stephen. Right. Well, I think I think he's just going to have to make the best of it. Jack, meanwhile, I think he's finding his way to bear this slightly melancholy, slightly sort of nostalgic feeling that he's got, knowing that the surprise is on a way to being at the end of her official naval career. Um, he can't avoid an invitation to dine with Admiral Hart over aboard the Pollux because they have some particularly calm weather. And, you know, we know that O'Brien loves describing big set piece meals and he loves the fact that the crew um, are, you know, in and around the surprise like their good food and good wine and good entertainment. And this meal is none of those. Um, the cook is drunk. Um, the meal's a bit of a mess. A raw carrot in the middle of the pudding, I think he said. Right. And Hart, Hart is pretty willing to condemn it uh, in front of the captain of the Pollux. But meanwhile, Jack praises the port and Hart, who's a bit of a sour-faced old geezer at this point, says how he's had he's had so much better port and, you know, the kind of port that would make any naval port look like, you know, something cheap from the harbour harbor mouth. But he still drank plenty of it. And, Mike, I think this characterization of Hart is sort of what we've known about him so far. We've known and expected that he's a bit pompous, he's in a bit vinegary and he's a bit up himself. And... He's also a bit nosy and he likes to interfere. And Jack realises, having mistakenly mentioned the watering hole that he plans to go and visit at Zambra, Hart suddenly gets very interested. But this gives rise to this interesting little insight into Hart. Hart gives Jack a purse of coins and asks him to buy a Christian slave or two with it while on shore. And Hart makes a point, he says, of doing this every time he's on the Barbary coast. And the text says, Jack had known Hart for a long time without ever once knowing him to do a handsome thing. And this new aspect of his character added to the dreamlike quality of these last few days, an exquisite gentle dream in spite of its strong sense of last time, even of doom, he reflected as the barge took him back. But he could find no way of expressing its nature in words. 
So, Mike, what, what's he going to do if he can't express a deep, melancholy thought in words? Well, the text goes on. Music could come nearer. He could more nearly define it with a fiddle under his chin, to find it at least to his own satisfaction. With the lovely but menacing slow movement of a partita that he sometimes played running through his head. Ah, oh, Mike, I think that might be Bach. Ah, yes. <laughs> with this running through his head, he gazed at the surprise. She was as familiar to him as a ship could well be, but because of this train of reflection, or because of some trick of the light, or because it was really so, her nature too had changed. She was a ship in a dream, a ship he hardly knew, and she was sailing along a course long since traced out, as straight and narrow as a razor's edge. Wow. Wow. (laughs) It's beautiful writing, isn't it? I love this writing, yes. You know, you've got this cinematic descriptive writing of the sea, of the ship, of this relationship, of kind of fate moving through here, the atmosphere of this dreamlike journey. I mean, this is just so amazing here. You know, all that O'Brien's doing in this passage. And and as you pointed out, Ian, you know, we just got this very interesting kind of new insight into Hart's character. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of a, re- a redeeming feature. And A, maybe that's because Patrick O'Brien likes everyone to have a bit of light and shade to their character. But B, they've given us a reason to care a little bit about heart. And I find myself wondering why O'Brien might have done that. Right, right. And and we know O'Brien has come at this through Stephen before and through others. You know, slavery is a bit of an issue for him here. And, and I think this is a great statement because you, you're going to say, even if somebody's as big an SOB as Hart, even yeah. he thinks slavery is wrong. So I think O'Brien's <laughs> sending a pretty good message to us here. I love that. Oh, well, in the morning, you know, kind of per Jack's orders, they part company with the Pollux. You know, the Pollux is going to stand off and on while the surprise goes inland through Zambra Bay to water and to visit Zambra, you know, to kind of fulfill their mission there, this one that hearts not to interfere with. And they're really hard at work. They want to beautify the ship before they get to Zambra and they have this meeting with the day. And Jack has called all his youngsters together, as he always does with a new landing, to point out all the landmarks and the sea marks. And O'Brien actually includes a map. And Ian, you've you've noticed before that, you know, sometimes this tells us something when O'Brien decides to include a map in the book. <laughs> I think so. I, I have a feeling, first of all, he only relatively rarely puts maps in books. When there are loads of actions and complex bits of geography and kind of space and time that would really benefit from a map. I have a feeling that the moments when he puts a map in a book around an action like this are when it's fictional, because there's no way... Um, any reader can go, oh, let me go look on the map and see what's going on with Zambra Bay. Um, we head over to cannonade.net, our old friend Tom Horn. Um, his path of the track of the vessels in Treason's Harbor says that, uh, he says, my best guess is that the fictional seaport of Zambra is somewhere in the vicinity of the Bay of Oran, or perhaps just a pseudonym for Oran itself. So we're way over on the northwestern kind of corner of Africa. Um, we learned that this name Zambra is actually the name of a Moorish dance performed by Spanish gypsies. So that's where O'Brien got that from. But this is a fictional place. And we get this beautiful little sketch map in the books showing how deep this bay is and portentously the location of these rocks called the Brothers and the location on the other side of the bay of the watering place. Yeah, and I and I love this. So Jack's giving all this, you know, knowledge to the youngsters and then by doing that giving it to us but these four rocks as you say the brothers a cable's length apart in the northwest which is across the bay from the watering place and and jack points out that the moors the people in this area really don't pay any attention to them but jack says you know from his earlier experience you have to pay attention because large ships like ours have to be careful because this is the narrow area in the otherwise deep bay. Mm. They head for the watering hole and Jack goes and visits Stephen in the gunroom. Um, he sees his rather scrappy looking three-day beard and a really vile wig and that absolutely confirms in his mind that Stephen's innocence because everybody else on board ship is absolutely dressed up to the nines all the time whenever Laura Fielding's anywhere within range, but Stephen is back to his scrappy, scruffy, scrofulous old self. 
Um, Jack's upset that Laura has invited them for chocolate in Jack's cabin and not coffee. And they have this little kind of rather petulant sitting with their arms folded, waiting, seeing if she'll do the decent thing and command some coffee for them. Um, they did get to have some coffee with her um, until the point where Jack went out to supervise landing and watering. So they're back over on the eastern side of this bay and this watering place is within range. They're going to drop the anchor. And as they're doing this, they see Pollocks coming further and further into the bay. And this is a tricky thing for a big ship because you get into the uh, into the arms of a big, deep bay like this. You can then get stuck. You'll need to tack or where to get out again. But Hart can't help himself. Um, he's still out of sight of Zambra, looking across the bay at surprise. And as Pollux gets in further, a gun fires from a fort. This fort at Acroma is flying no colours. Jack looks at the fort in his telescope and sees an 80-gun, three-decker with Turkish colours, followed by two frigates, one heavy 38-gun frigate and a smaller 28-gun frigate, just like surprise, all coming round that northwest headland, all three of them heading for Pollux, a worn-out old 64-gun ship. And guess what? The Turkish colours are a ruse de guerre, an Aubrey classic. The Turkish colours come down, the French colours go up, and guess what? This is a powerful little squadron of three French ships. The big ship, the three-decker, engages Pollux with full broadsides, yardarm to yardarm. And remember, in that arms of the bay here, Hart's got nothing he can do. Pollux is pretty much stuck and has to take the action. The heavy frigate comes up to rake her from across her hulls, from across her bows. And as they've seen all of this, probably in as you know, in just a couple of minutes, in the, as time in the time that it takes to tell a story, Surprise has seen this. They've dropped everything. They've slipped their um, their anchor and their cable. They've left the launch there, and they head straight across the bay. They've got to tack. They've got to zigzag into the wind to get across the bay because this action with the Pollocks and the French ships is dead to windward of where the Surprise is. Surprise has got nine miles in a zigzag to cover. It's not nine miles as a straight line. They've got nine miles of zigzag to cover, so it's going to take them some time. He's pleased, therefore, that he can see Pollux is firing well, using her big 32-pounder carronades, which is exactly, I think, what Jack would do. And just as they're about to tack near the brothers, Pollux's foremast goes by the board. The French ships have had a lucky shot. Pollux is finally yielding to some severe damage. Pollux's foremast is down. The two frigates then turn to engage the surprise. Now that Pollux is kind of stuck and can't manoeuvre, these two frigates have got the weather gauge on Jack. They can head downwind. Jack asks Stephen to take Mrs. Fielding into the hold and head for the Orlock because if the French choose to fight now, there's nothing Jack can do as they come down from uh, from to windward of him. This 38-gun ship, the bigger of the two frigates, was unlikely to be as nimble as the surprise. And I like this little perspective that Jack has, even as he's just watching them from a couple of miles away through the telescope, he can see that the crew on the bigger frigate isn't as confident or as well-led as Jack feels that a a British ship would be. The smaller frigate, although it's well-handled, is pretty sluggish. They note that it's probably Dutch. It's kind of short and fat and broad-bowed. So he thinks he's got some options now to figure out how he can get past these frigates. One of them slow and sluggish, the other one badly sailed. And that's not going to be straightforward. They've both got the chance to do this kind of pincer movement to engulf him. And he remembers that Stephen had told him that the French term for about ship is adjuva, which means in ordinary language, we must chance it and trust to God. And he reflects that these next couple of attacks he's going to do are exactly that, a big roll of the dice. That is just about it with us, he reflected. Yeah, these big ships, they just continue to batter each other. And and all of a sudden, the smoke just kind of blasts out from the center with this huge towering jet of flames. And Pollux's magazine has exploded. It blows down the French Commodore's foremast, but doesn't sink her. And Jack readies to wear ship because now he can't help the Pollock. So he's trying to escape. He knows the French will absolutely attack him, even if he gets into Zambra. They'll, you know, with all their strength, they're going to take him neutral port or not. And from the forts firing, I think he's kind of realizing that, you know, this is probably not a neutral port after all. Um, no. He sees that big French two-decker, badly damaged. It's got the boats out. It's not moving. And he knows that he could probably take either one of the frigates, but he can't take them both together. So he's studying them. 
you know, as you were pointing out, that the big one doesn't seem to have been together as long or, you know, or had much time at sea. They're slower, but they have the weather gauge. The fort opens fire on them, but it, they can't get them. And clearly now he knows the French already had the day as an ally. So he steers for the West Shore. And, you know, Brian tells us that surprise handles like a thoroughbred, you know, this, this, you know, the love of his horse language. And Jack knows, of course, just how to sail her. And he sails two miles parallel to the heavy frigate. And, you know, you've got Jack kind of like a supercomputer. All the calculations are running through his mind smoothly as he heads to shore. And close to shore, he comes about racing up towards the brothers and the cape beyond them. So, with the weather gauge and the shorter distance, the French are gaining on him and they're all racing for the brothers and the frigate behind him is packing on more and more canvas now going faster than the surprise. And she's trying to reach the middle passage before surprise and cut her off. So neither of them fire because nobody wants to check their speed. And the smaller frigate passes the first channel and tries to double back. Jack has the crew very discreetly reduce sail and the passing Frenchman, the other one now, this time fires. Jack reduces sail even more. And O'Brien writes, the Frenchman raced ahead, flinging a splendid bow wave, raced on into the middle passage and struck with unbelievable force. All her masks instantly pitching forward and to leeward. Her consort at once bore up, running fast to the eastern shore. Silence, fore and aft, roared Jack above the cheering. Clue up, clue up, back the main topsail. And when enough way had come off, he steered her gently gliding, not through the first passage at all, but through a deep cleft between the first brother and the shore cliff itself, so narrow that her yard arm scraped on either side. Brace up and haul aft, he said. And the surprise, gathering live way again with the wind on her beam, headed out to the open sea. Whoa. <laughs> Aren't we glad that Jack was on a ship that got stuck here? <laughs> What's yeah. What? Oh. You know, that was such a fast action, but oh my gosh, the politics blowing up, this race with the frigate. It was really quite a scene. Yeah. And and he, he won it all by maneuvering and tactics and without firing a shot. Um, yeah. It's funny, th- th- this idea of the, the maneuvering, it reminded me a bit, if anybody's been watching the uh, America's Cup on the internet in the last few weeks, th- this was like the pre-start for an America's Cup match. <laughs> mm-hmm. So super exciting. And yet another variation, you know, O'Brien doesn't ever want to give us the same naval battle over and over again. We get another variation on how a naval battle goes. We got straight into it and really shocking, you know, two big shocking moments, The as you say, the explosion of the Pollocks and then the striking of the French frigate on the uh, on the rocks, and all of a sudden it's like, ah, huh, birds are singing, the the sun is shining, but all is not completely well. Jack has still got his orders. He looks back into the bay through his telescope, and the text says his eye still had a fine piratical gleam in it as he turned over the possibilities in his mind. He called for Stephen and showed him the entire lay of the land, and I love this. Uh, conversation between Jack and Stephen. Jack is basically saying, look at all these things we could do. We could do this and we could do that. And let's see what kind of response he gets from Stephen. Be so good, he says, as to give me your political opinion on the following plan. We proceed to Zambra without the loss of a minute, engage that miserable Dutch herring bus and the fort that fired on us and having taken them, send to the day stating that unless his government instantly apologizes, we shall burn all the shipping. When that is settled, we can have our interview with Mr. Consul Elliot do you think this is a good scheme? And Jack is like, bang, bang, bang. I've got this plan. No messing around with anchoring over galleys and diving bells and fake treasure. I can just get in there and sort this all out. He's going, come on, Stephen. This is the last chapter of the book. I I spy a resolution. (laughs) And Stephen says, nah, this is the last chapter of a Patrick O'Brien book. Because Stephen's dialogue says, no, sir, I do not. It is clear that the day was a party to this carefully laid trap. And since his fort fired on the surprise, he obviously considers that we are already in the state of war. From all I understand, he is an unusually bloody-minded, choleric man. And I believe that an attack at this stage in the present state of excitement would certainly result in Mr. Elliot's death. And with a French two-decker in the bay, there is still no time for poor Parley, even though she may be obliged to lie at her moorings for a while. 
I think the plan, he says, politically unsound, not only for these reasons, but for many more. In the present circumstances, no political counsellor would advise you anything but to sail away and ask for fresh instructions. I was afraid you would say that, said Jack, with a longing glance over the water towards Zambra. There is a great deal to be said for making hay while the iron is hot, one of our favourite Aubreyisms, for making hay while the iron is hot, but you know, we clearly must not kill Mr. Elliot. And I like the fact that Jack is going, well, Mr. Elliot's life is kind of in the balance here, and let's make a calculation. But no, reason prevails. Jack gives orders to head for Gibraltar and says, well, since it's stopped raining and we are to have no battle, we must let poor dear Mrs. Fielding out of the hold. And that's the cue to go straight back to the comedy of Manor's world, the youngsters of the ship fighting over who's going to go and get her. Right. right. You know, it, it, it is so funny because um, we, we've had all this stuff happen now. And now, you know, Ryan's saying is, you know, Killick has the cabin back in place much faster than he usually does. Um, Laura invites Jack and Stephen for coffee. Jack decides, uh, you know what? I think I'll start my official letter tonight as we're going to arrive in Gibraltar by Tuesday, which is always a lucky day. And and Brian writes about Jack thinking to himself, if the Admiral gave him a ship of the line with a Captain Junior to himself, the names of a half dozen passed through his mind, the possible, indeed the probable, taking of the two Frenchmen would set him up on the right road again, the road for employment, a good command, a 40-gun frigate on North American station. I shall pitch it. Hot and strong, he said with a very happy smile. <laughs> and Mike, it's really interesting that the book ends up with people writing letters. Yes. They're writing letters. We've had letter writing. This has been practically an epistolary novel at some points. We've had so much of the action happening during letter writing. So Laura says, I'm going to write to Charles. She's going to tell him how kind Jack has been to her. And he will be happy, she says. He will be happy to meet you. And Mike, I think that she might not know the significance of the word meet, which is a term very precisely used by Fielding in his earlier note to Jack, clearly yes, suggesting, as, as, as we already know, that actually he has in mind a, a rather deadly kind of a meeting. So the text goes on. Stephen said, but to himself alone, I too shall write a letter. Not more than eight or perhaps nine men knew the contents of Jack's orders. And if that does not enable Ray to lay his hands on the prime chief Judas, then there is the very devil in it. Ooh, boy, I will tell you, there is indeed the very devil in it. But I don't think Stephen, we know Stephen, doesn't realize who the devil is here. You know, we're, we're at the end of Treason's Harbor and none of our heroes know who is harboring treason in their heart in this harbor here, right? Well, I think I, I failed to mention earlier, you know, we, we dispatched Hart on the Pollux and, and O'Brien does have a short interlude there where everybody acknowledges that, that, you know, despite this kind of predominant mood of victory, they think about, about Hart, but then they move on to coffee and everything, as we had said here. And, and we're kind of, you know, it, it, to me, it, it, it's a little bit like the way the book ends, that there's this, all this ominous stuff, but everybody seems to be happy. Everybody seems to be moving on. And like you say, you know, Jack thinks he's set up for a happy road ahead. Stephen thinks Ray's going to put an end to the French spies in Malta. Laura thinks everything's coming up. Roses. She can't wait to see Charles. And we always know in a Patrick O'Brien book, just when you think everything's going great, you got to ask yourself, what could possibly go wrong? What indeed. And there, there are still a few puzzles, right? The, um, even though the book is called Treason's Harbour, we still haven't really uncovered, to, to all of the actors in the story, we haven't really uncovered the treason. This wasn't really Treason's Harbour. This was the beginning of the sign of a of a treason taking place somewhere right in the, in the dark depths of the harbour. Because we suspect, Jack and Stephen suspect even more strongly, that there's some some bad dealing going on somewhere. But only Ray himself and we, the reader, know the real extent of the treason and who's involved. And maybe we're going to find out at the beginning of chapter one of the next book that Ray's been arrested and he's been hanged and it's all been taken care of. Or maybe not. Yeah, oh. maybe not indeed. <laughs> yeah. So, Mike, maybe this is this is a really good moment. Um, let's Let's take a break and go and enjoy a cup of coffee hot and strong. And then maybe 
have a few thoughts about where we're at in the canon so far and where we've got to and what might be lying ahead. Great idea, Ian. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. So welcome back. We hope that you're fortified. Um, we wanted to spend some time now just thinking, partly because we're in week one of our new year of life on the lover's hole, and partly because we got to the end of this really great arc in the Mediterranean with Treason's Harbour. This is a really good moment for us to share a few thoughts at this first anniversary, looking back at where we've been and looking forward to what's coming next. Mike, we've we've come a long way from the octagonal pillared music room in Port Mahon. It, it, there's been a lot going on for Jack and Stephen. There's been a lot going on for the Lubbers Hole as well. There really has. You know, they've matured. We've matured. You know, as the listeners requested, we've slowed down. We've dug deeper. We're really digging to appreciate the richness of these novels. Yeah, I remember in the first episode, we were talking to each other about how yeah, th- these are not really naval warfare novels. And actually, if, if you look at the amount of naval warfare action in the last three or four books, um, just a little naval warfare is going a long way in these stories. It's not that the stories are slow, but that you can read a book like Ionian Mission with a little tiny bit of action in the last chapter and Treason's Harbor with even less action right at the end of the chapter and still know that you're in the same place. You know, compared to... The, the amount of action that was in HMS Surprise or certainly Mauritius Command, um, we're, being, we're being very sparingly treated to kind of blood and thunder. Yeah, very true. Very true. In lieu of all the blood and thunder, what we've seen is this incredible character development. We've watched Stephen and Jack, how they've grown in their friendship. We might even say it's, it's, it's almost a problem. They're so mature and steadfast in their friendship that even this affair with Laura Fielding, something that had them uh, about to duel each other in post-captain, doesn't shake them. And and so you kind of wonder, where are these guys going next? I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Dax. Well, the, the, there, there are still some things going on in both of their backstories, I guess. And speaking of what's going on in their backstories, um, it's amazing how some of the major secondary characters haven't really been front and center in the last couple of books, but we know for sure that they're still there. So Sophie and Diana, to mention the two most important ones, they've been the subjects of letters and the authors of letters, but we haven't had them front and center really since they left uh, London a couple of books ago. Um, Joseph Blaine, Yag Yellow, Admiral Hart, until the episode aboard the Pollocks a couple of paragraphs ago, Henage Dundas, and now Andrew Ray, assuming that he gets to survive chapter one of the next book, and I'm not going to spoil that one for you all. Um, These characters all have a life of their own. They've been drawn out as the books have gone by. They've got a place in the story, and we're aware of them even when they're not often on the page. It's so true, Ian. And we've got the most important secondary character of all, HMS Surprise herself. In the normal timeline of a post-rank captain managing to achieve some success and interest in the Admiralty, you'd expect Jack's time as a frigate captain is either over or about to be done. So what do we do? Do we kind of join him in mourning the passage of the surprise, the passage of this stage in his career, or is something else going to take place? There's some clues in the life of Thomas Cochran, but that's in the future, and we know we don't deal with spoilers in this podcast. No, we don't. And um, we know that that, uh, that matters to our listeners as well. So as, as well as getting to know all of the characters in the novels, Mike, we've had a great time getting to know our listeners. It's been really lovely, I think, in this kind of first few books to get a chance to meet everybody. I think we've had a great time getting feedback from our listeners and from our patrons and the great supporters over there on Patreon. Um, we've had great conversations on social media. As you all know by now, on Twitter, we're at Whole Lubbers and on Facebook, we're on facebook.com forward slash Lubbers Hole. Um, we've had some great back and forth with people on those uh, on those channels and um, getting together with our patrons from time to time on Zoom calls as well. That's been really great. 
Yeah, it is. You know, it's certainly a mark of the pandemic and and our lockdowns when there is a fun Zoom call to be on, and those were definitely yeah. and continue to be great fun Zoom calls. Yeah. So this is probably a nice moment, I think, to do a little shout out to all the people who are currently supporting the Lovers Hole on Patreon, because we know that you all are listening because you love the show. And I think you all know that we're making the show because we love to do it. But the support of the patrons really means that we can get some of the uh, some of the editing and some of the organization of the show taken care of for us. And it frees us up to keep thinking about great content. And we've had some really nice dialogue and some really nice support with all of our patrons. So we want to say a big thank you to them right now. We'd like to thank um, Ellen Skilden and Anthony Ruggier, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and Jane, whoever Jane is, and Ryan Uliano. Ken Douglas, Jim Cashes, Shawana Armstrong, Andrew Jensen, Jane McCammett, Kate Lovelady. Yeah, and Blaine Trotman and Julie Rose. Thank you, Julie. Um, Gerald Powell and Anthony Vogel are all supporters. Thank you to you guys. Plus, there's Greg Timar, Edwin Villarreal, Rob Steele, and James Amatruda. Yeah. Les Elkins, Chris McDermott, Mac Johnson, Ethan Basseri, David Catanio, Kat Nope, somebody with the screen name Snarked. Love that. <laughs> Mark Pruitt, Tony Millionaire, Bella Markman, Colonel Alan Huffines, Stephanie Nolte, Nancy Salachinsky, Rob Boughton, and screen name Galak. Ah, Mark Eilif, John Scott, Eric Latimer, David Michael Corns, Devo Christie, and some guy named Mike Shank, who really likes to see Ian and I have to spend so much editing time. <laughs> we want to thank you all for keeping us going. Thank you for the uh, support that you've given that lets all of the listeners benefit from the, uh, the time that we put into the show. We're also really happy to say thank you to all of the special guests who shared their knowledge, uh, shared their insights. We've been... Uh, really fortunate to spend some time with them as well doing um contact with our patreon supporters we've had the chance to share some of our extended interviews with our guests with patreon supporters we've been delighted to have them showing up as as guests on our patreon zoom calls yeah and and you know i'm going to come back to julie rose again and thank you so much for having us on your love what you love podcast now if if any of you out there want to learn a little bit more about the history of the lover's hole catch us on Julie's episode 34, named The World of Patrick O'Brien with Ian Bradley and Mike Shank. And we'll put a link to that out there on social media. And while you're there, catch some of her other great episodes, including the guy who's building a replica of one of these ships, as well as people doing all sorts of amazing things that they're passionate about. And loads of other online resources that have both helped us as we've pulled the podcast together and i think are there as a resource for you all to enjoy um you've heard us mention in this episode already canonade.net and tom horn who was a great guest on the show um hmssurprise.org and the gun room you guys are great the facebook groups the aubrey matron appreciation society the patrick o'brien facebook group um, that great web link a guide for the perplexed which we i think we shared out just on our socials in the last week or so Really, really great to have all of that help. Really great to feel like we're part of this community of people who still are loving these books and talking about them and teasing out some of the richness of what's in the text. Yeah, we're and there's so many more that I know that we've used and referenced and listed before. Um, and you know, maybe we'll come back and point out some of those great guides that people like the Gun Room have put together. Uh, listing so many of these things. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to the singularity to find out where a phrase or name appears in the canon. So it's just great things. Um, as well as places on the internet, places in the world. As we look back on this first year, we've been to some fascinating corners of the globe, fictionally, of course, and in some cases, historically as well, um, with Jack and Stephen. We've been all around the Mediterranean, the Ionian, the Red Sea, the Gulf of Suez, the North Atlantic, the South Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian Ocean and the Indian subcontinent itself. We've been to the Baltic to visit the Nordics. We've been in high southern latitudes in the roaring 40s. We've watched relationships develop. We've had the Stephen and Diana roller coaster. Who remembers what they were doing back at HMS Surprise? What a world of difference there is there. Right. And the roller coaster of Lucky Jack's fortunes. And some of his fortunes have been absolutely to do with his luck. And some of them have been self-made, perhaps. And they've been meeting all these great, colorful characters from around the world. Yeah, we'd love to know what your favorite scenes have been. 
we'd love to know, did you did you learn anything for those of you who are kind of going back through the first half of the canon this year? Anything, especially, I, I always love hearing from people who are new to the canon and, you know, kind of what, you know, what you look back on and relish so far in this journey with us. You know, what's it been like reading these stories during pandemic and lockdown? I know for me, it's been an absolute lifeline and I thank yeah. you for that. What would you like to see next year? Anything new? Anything different? Please, Ian talked about our, our social media tags there, Facebook and Twitter, um, patrons on the Patreon page. You know, please let us know ideas for additional guests, topics you'd like us to include or revisit as we move through the next six or seven books over the course of the next year. Isn't it amazing to think we're, you know, we're nine books through at this pace. We'll be another six or seven for another year. And we may have another two years left ahead of us. Ian, this is, this is pretty exciting journey here. We feel like whalers out. Well, wow, and it's, it's not only us who've got uh, exciting developments going on. We learned that uh, Norton, the U.S. publisher of the Patrick O'Brien um, estate, will be re-releasing the Aubrey Maturin series this year. And there's going to be new cover art, we think. There's going to be new branding. There's going to be a new effort to bring even more readers in to learning and loving these uh, these great books. We're really hoping to see the first three coming out pretty soon. Um, the other thing that, that we noticed, Mike, looking back, is that Way back 12 months ago, we took two episodes, just two episodes, to cover Master and Commander, the first book in the canon. So we've been thinking about revisiting Master and Commander at a slower pace, and that might help to welcome readers who might be new to O'Brien. So if anybody out there's got any thoughts on that, would you like to see us do a redux of Master and Commander a little slower? Tell us what you think. We are looking forward to so many things in the next 52 weeks, you know, this being the first of those 52. What we're most looking forward to is spending more time with you. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for your support. Thanks for all the interaction on Patreon, Facebook, Twitter, the Facebook groups. And we look forward to spending the next 52 weeks with you. Please bring your friends, fellow canon lovers, and always folks new to the world of Jack Aubrey and Stephen Matron. Ah, so, Mike, what, what do you say to another year of Patrick O'Brien on the Lubber's Hole? Ah, oh, with all my heart. <laughs> <laughs>